Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. As uh, I think has already been mentioned, thank you for your courage in coming out with this cold weather. You know, I think we've gotten a little soft here in Indiana because the weather has been so warm. And so then when it's actually winter, we, you know, think that this is, we're living in, in, in the Arctic or something. But it's, uh, it, it was kind of cold out today. And so it's good to have you here in the warmth of our sanctuary, and we are continuing in our look at the Gospel of John. As I said last week, we're going to be looking at John over the next several months, and uh, because of the fact that I did uh, John 1, the beginning, the first part of it, uh, for Christmas Eve, and then last week, if you were here, uh, we kind of did the middle towards the end, and today we get to finish out that first chapter. And last week, um, Jesus began by uh, beginning to start calling his disciples. And so he's going to continue to do that this week. And so with that, let's look at John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Philip said to him, or excuse me, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we take space even now for a moment of silence, perhaps in many ways, the quietest that we have yet been all week. And we offer up this space to you. We offer up these next few minutes to you, praying that we would hear from your Spirit. And that we would be reminded of your love for us, of your call to us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So uh, I'm guessing that this week, at least many of you, uh, hopefully, received text at around 4 o'clock or maybe 4.01 that simply said, what are you looking for? Four. Uh, if you're like me, once or twice this week, I was a little spooked by that text because I was actually looking for something and I was like, who knows that I'm looking for something, right? And so it was this uh, kind of surprise. And if you weren't here last Sunday and you just started getting that text, then you were probably extremely spooked at times. But the reason we did that, of course, is because we were remembering 
what Jesus said to those disciples long ago. What are you looking for? We believe that what you're looking for will dictate what you find. What you're looking for will shape how you see, how you love, and how you live. The lens through which we see ourselves and the world around us and God shapes dramatically our lives. And we'll see that again, it seems to me, this week. And so I want us to take a look at that, but I want us to start by way of a home group question that we had last week. One of the home group questions last week was, do you think it was easier or more difficult to be a disciple 2,000 years ago than it is to be a disciple today. Now, I don't know how you all answered that question in your own home group, but uh, uh, there's no right or wrong answer. Nobody knows for sure. No way to prove it. But if you want to know what I think, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're desperate to know, um, I think probably it's more difficult, it would have been more difficult then than it is today. I base that mostly off of the fact that now, some you know, 2,000 years later, we see a lot of remarkable things that Jesus has done through his followers. We see people who have received forgiveness and who, have been, who were lost and who are yet now found. We see people who, because of Jesus Christ and his grace and love, it has transformed them, their lives, their families. Uh, we've seen uh, those who are hungry be fed because of Jesus' followers. Those who are thirsty have something to drink. Those who are homeless uh, being given a shelter. We see a lot of incredible things that followers of Jesus have done. Now, to be sure... The church is not flawless. We have made tons of mistakes. We continue to make mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes. But by and large, the church and the followers of Jesus Christ have had a tremendous impact on our world. And so it's a bit easier, perhaps, for us to kind of hitch ourselves to this Jesus because of the ways that we have seen him work over these last two millennia. But contrast that, if you will, with the beginning of Jesus's ministry, or really, quite frankly, any of it. If you were just to look at it through kind of more objective eyes, and if you were to try to place yourself in that time and space, you would have to say that well, well, things weren't really all that spectacular. Remember again the disciples. You remember the disciples, right? Um, they were very ordinary, incredibly boring. They were fishermen and tax collectors. Not that those are boring professions. I don't know, maybe, uh, but, 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 but they weren't that extraordinary. Not only that, but they were always making mistakes. I mean, we, we see that the Bible is abundantly clear. All the gospel writers, they always love, it seems, to show how foolish the disciples are. They're always making mistakes. And then, of course, not only do they make mistakes, but one of those 12, as you know, actually betrayed Jesus. So imagine if you were a disciple, or maybe if you were just an onlooker, and you're there on the day when Jesus is up on the cross, and someone says, well, you know, this guy, you know, he said he was the Messiah. Other people said he was the Messiah. And then guess what? Uh, you know, one of his own, he only had a small group of people at this point, and one of his own betrayed him, and now he's up there. How many of you are saying, well, now this sounds like a guy I want to get to know even better? Who of you says, well, what did he live for? Because I'd love to join that. No, most of us are saying, mm, I'm not sure I want to follow this guy. 
Not only that, if you look again at most of Jesus's life, and it's hard for us to do this, but by and large, it wasn't that spectacular. Remember, how old was Jesus when he finally started his ministry? He was 30. And recall, not that 30 is old, but in that day and age, that's about three quarters of a typical lifespan. So that's like a 60-year-old, also young-ish. But all the way to 60 before anything, all that interesting happened to him. There's very little that's talked about him. Why do the gospel writers not say much about his first 60 years? Because not that much happened, right? I mean, this is not rocket science, right? There's just not much that's happening. And then even when he does, you say, oh, well, yeah, he had some moments. He had some moments, no question. I don't want to downplay the miracles. But if you really kind of look at his story, he'll have hits or misses. There will be a little bit of a crowd, but then he kind of, then the crowd kind of goes away. I've begun reading a book recently that talked about the fact that Jesus didn't even seem to like the crowds. As soon as like his popularity began to grow, he tried to get away. He would go off. He would, he would say prayers on his own, all these things to try to quell some of the popularity that he had begun to grow. And of course, as you know, towards the end of the time, the crowds really abandoned him. There was really very few. In fact, it's the reason why Dale Bruner talks about the fact that he, he, he sees this whole thing about Nazareth. Remember Nazareth. This is this great line, of course, that Nathaniel gives, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? In other words, nobody famous or rich or powerful or all that interesting came out of Nazareth. I was going to uh, uh, try to give you like an equivalent town, and then I realized I could get in a lot of trouble if it's where you're from. And so I'm just saying that this was really, there was nothing big or splashy. So Dale Bruner says that by and large, Jesus lived a low-profile life. And he lived this low-profile life with great intentionality. That Jesus' concerns were not making sure that he was incredibly popular with everybody or that he had a massive following at that time. And I bring that up because I want, as we continue in our look at the Gospel of John, I want to challenge you to pay attention to how it is that Jesus so often worked, that he chose more often than not, 90% of the time at least, to pour his life into a small band of ordinary people rather than trying to make this massive splash or drawing a huge crowd. And I think that's important for several reasons, but one of those is because of the fact that I think that far too often our culture would shape us in a different way. In our culture, there is much more focus on what is big and splashy. There is little room, we've talked about this before, for what is insignificant or seemingly insignificant for the small and for the ordinary. Everybody wants to do the big, the impressive, the radical, the spectacular. That's what we are about. And I think it starts from a very young age, this shaping of our people and our Culture. One of the things that I've noticed over the years as my children have begun to grow, now they're, uh, what are they? They are, t- I'm just kidding, I know. They're 10, 8, 7, and 4. One of the things that I have noticed is that the books that they have read or that we have read them, 
the kids' shows that we have watched with them or that they have watched on their own. And sometimes um, even the posters or some things that we see in their, ch- in, their, in their classrooms or in their schools have this great emphasis on the fact that they can change the world. You can change the world. You should change the world. You will change the world. You can do it. Be a world changer. Now, listen. I think that that's a fine concept. And without question, I think the world could use changing. There are lots of things that need to be changed about our world. And I want you to hear this. I love my children. And I hope that they can play a part in making some changes in the world. I hope that you hear that. But here is my concern about an unintended consequence, which is that we are actually setting our children up for disappointment, for frustration, for isolation and anger. Because here's the thing. Changing the world is no small thing. Changing the world is not done in one fell swoop. Changing the world takes an inordinate amount of time, an inordinate amount of steps, an inordinate amount of people. It takes a lot of things to change the world. And my concern is that when our children, I'll speak personally, maybe you're like, no, I want my child, and and, you you do this, I'll talk myself. I am concerned that if my kids hear that too much, that when they get out into the, quote, real world, that they are going to struggle mightily. I was watching a video, actually it was recommended to me by somebody, by Simon Sinek not long ago, and he suggests that you already are beginning to see this with younger generations, that he talks to them, and they get out, they get their jobs, and all of a sudden, they're like, what's happening? We are not making any kind of massive impact Right? Because they've been cultivated that as soon as they got out, all of a sudden they were going to change the world. And what they are finding is that they can barely change anything. And so he says, eventually they all, they end up being isolated, depressed, and anxious, and worryful, as we've all heard these statistics. And a part of that is because we have told them that they could change everything. What Sinek goes on to say is, he says, they see the summit, right? Oh, that's where I want to, that's where I want to be. And this is what we told them. This is what you need to be. This is what you can be. And they fail to see the mountain, And the reality is that in order to reach that summit, it's going to take a lot of people, a lot of work, and even there's a great likelihood that you may not actually even reach that summit. You may help someone else who gets there a little bit closer, but you may not reach that place. My concern is, A, that we're going to put so much emphasis on this fact of changing the world that our Kids and even our adults are going to struggle when they don't feel like they've changed the world. Now, here's my second concern, which is that actually it works in the inverse, which is that if you think that what you have to do is change the world, it paralyzes us from doing almost anything. 
Because if what you think is you're going to change the world and that's all you can think about, then that means you're going to take one massive step and all of a sudden you're going to be on the summit and everything is going to change and you are going to miss out on all of the little steps that you could have taken to actually get or at least get closer to the changes that you are wanting to see. So it begins to paralyze you. One of our staff members shared with us a sign in a bathroom. You may have seen this before that said, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change the toilet paper. (laughs) Be the change. You see, I love that because I think it is absolutely true, which is that we sit down and we literally and figuratively and we daydream about all the great changes that we're going to be. And this is going to be so incredible and it's going to be wonderful. And because of that, we get distracted and we leave and the person who comes after us is left with a mess. And we get paralyzed because we think that everything is about the spectacular. Everything is about the exciting. Everything is about the big. And because of that, we then begin to become paralyzed as to what we can do. Now, I realize that everything I've said so far sounds more like it should go on the op-ed of the Indie Star than it does to be a sermon. But let me tell you why I think this is important. One of the things that we say here at ZPC is that we want to become and grow in discipleship. And part of the way that we've defined that is being shaped like Jesus. What I want to suggest is that we can't be shaped like Jesus wholly unless we also realize how we are also trying to be shaped like our culture. And if our culture continues to tell us that we have to do the spectacular, then we will believe that if we are trying to build for God's kingdom, then it has to be in this glorious, massive way. Otherwise, we have been a failure. And what we fail to do then as a church is we fail to see the reality of how Jesus actually worked. Look at these stories of Jesus again and again. There are so many more stories of these incredibly ordinary ways. What did Jesus do? You know this. We've talked about it. He he notices people that others don't notice. He sees the people who are in need of a touch. He washes their feet. He goes off and prays on his own. He teaches that it's the meek who inherit the earth. He calls not the rich and the powerful, but the poor and the ordinary. He comes from this little backwards uh, flyover town called Nazareth. And as followers of Jesus, we fail if what we tend to focus on are those big and glorious things that we can do to build for God's kingdom. And we forget that that is not more often than not how Jesus works. I've told most of you that I've been working on this doctorate. And the project I did um, was to ask you know, 20 or 25 ZPCers to sit in their yards for two hours a week for two months. In other words, I did not ask them to be world changers, right? I mean, think about this. This is not a great rally when you sit around and say, hey, man, who wants to, we're going to build for God's kingdom. Who wants to do that? Yeah. Who wants to change the world? We do. Who wants to be the world changer? We do. All right. That's great. Put your phone down. Put aside the reading material and go sit in your yard for two hours. Hmm. 
this guy's lame. There's nothing exciting or exhilarating about that. But why did I want our folks to do that? Well, for one, I wanted to see if ZPCers could actually go sit in their front yards for two hours a week and do nothing. I'd give us about a B minus C plus. It was hard. Secondly, I wanted to see whether or not our neighborhoods changed at all. Or really what I mean by that is, were there any relationships that were begun? Were there any relationships that were deepened at all? That's what I wanted to see. I'd say that we saw some that were and we saw some that weren't. But mostly what I wanted was to finish my doctorate. No, wait, that wasn't, that's not in here. Mostly what I wanted was to just learn. What did we learn by doing this? One of the things that we all learned is that it's really hard to keep doing something when you don't see any fruit. It's really hard to do something when there are no fireworks, right? It's really hard, and you could hear it. I heard the frustration of folks, right, either in their verbal words or in their written words as we were talking through this project that, you know, it got a little frustrating when nobody came by. It got a little frustrating when people seemed to avoid them. I told you all before, because I love the story, I like keeping on talking about it, how, you know, for some people would go across the street before they reached their house and then go over and then come back over after their house. That's awesome, right? Um, I told you all how some people thought that they were creepy, and so they're like, hey, man, you're kind of freaking out the neighborhood by just sitting there, right? It was so weird, and but here's what I, we also discovered, is that if you are willing to endure, you begin to see some things happen. You begin to see, for instance, conversations where people began to talk about, well, what are the differences? Let's talk about uh, Jews and, and, and Muslims and Christians. Let's talk about that. We, we began to see conversations that were around people who felt like they were isolated, you began to see that there were conversations uh, that people began to have where they began to open up with how they wondered at this stage in their life what purpose they actually had. You, we saw how these conversations then, as some of them worked out well, some of them didn't, say, hey, let's, let's develop, let's have an open house. And you saw people began to have those, and almost without fail, I want you to know this, the percentage of people who came to the open house had to be close to 80% or more of those people in the neighborhood were, who were invited. Do you know what that tells me? That people long to connect. We began to hear one neighborhood that, that, that seemed to have a certain amount of distrust and kind of backbiting, if you will. All of a sudden there began, not all of a sudden, but over time there began to be a bit more communication that all started with simply making oneself available. All of these small things. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, that's not changing the world. That's just making a little change, and you're right. But I also want to suggest that those changes are the kind of changes that continue on. Here's the thing about a big, splashy, spectacular event. Usually, it fizzles about as fast as it exploded. But these little conversations, the reason why they have staying power is because of the fact that they are all about relationship. And I understand that we as a church want to make big changes, that we want to be known for doing these huge things, that we might want to be on the news for doing this or for doing that. I want you to know I don't give a lick about any of that. 
Because here's the thing. When you look at the life of Jesus, again and again, it is the life of someone who focused on these small interactions, these face-to-face conversations. He talked to two disciples. One of them was Andrew. Andrew then went and talked to Simon. Simon then went and talked to Jesus. This week, he talked to Philip. Philip then went and talked to Nathaniel. Nathaniel then went and talked to Jesus. When you read through John or Matthew or Mark or Luke, what you will see again and again is passages like these. And usually we want to get to the meat of the passage. Let's get to the, the good stuff. Where are the, where are the miracles? Where are the exciting things? Where's the, the death and the resurrection? Let's get straight there. And we fail to see that all of that began with Jesus simply creating space to be in relationship with others. That's why at ZPC we talk about making disciples, being shaped like Jesus, building for God's kingdom, but we say how does that happen? More often than not, it happens through relationships, relationships with God and relationships with others. And we have to pay attention. We cannot be so sidetracked by our desires to change the whole world that we miss out on the foundation of what Jesus himself did. But here's the other part of that, which is that while we say it's about relationship, we also say that relationships don't just happen. How do relationship occur? They occur through invitation. That's exactly what we see going on in this passage. Jesus is walking. Two disciples are coming behind him. What does he eventually say to them? Three words. Come and see. Then he's going. He finds Philip. And he says, Philip, follow me. Then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, and it's great how quickly Philip has already learned, right? He meets this great skeptic, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's like, hey, ain't they good come out of Nazareth, right? He's mocking him. He's making fun of him. He's like, hey, don't worry about it, right? I mean, Philip is nonplussed by this. What does Philip say? Philip says, come and see. All he does is offer an invitation. Come see what it is that Jesus is doing. Come hang out with these disciples. Let's just see what happens. Someone has pointed out, he didn't say go and see. He says come and see. There's this sense of participation by all of us. There is this invitation. And one of the things that we say here at ZBC is that we have to be inviting and invitational. It's one of the things that we're talking about when it comes to our building. By the way, Within the next two or three months, at long last, we are finally going to make a presentation to the congregation about what it is that we are wanting to do with this building. And one of those things are about how can the building cultivate relationships and how can it be more inviting? What we know is that relationships are the ways that people meet Jesus and meet one another. And that the only way that that happens is when we are inviting, when we are invitational. 
It's a part of the reason why, and you guys know I do this, but I want to remind you, every month with session, every week with the staff, I ask the question, who have you met? Who did you meet? It is shaping our lens to say it is important for us to invite others into relationships. Now, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask three questions of you. I know ZPCers, they hate participating. But I'm going to ask you to anyways. And I'm going to ask you to honestly, I want you to raise your hands. I thought about having you stand up. Megan told me not to do it, but whatever. I mean, you know, I probably wish I wouldn't have. But I'm going to do it anyways. I want to ask three questions. This is the first question. Try to remember. For some of you, you're going to have to remember way far back. The first time you came to ZPC, did you come because someone invited you? If and, And look. Give an honest answer. Don't be like, well, Jerry wants us to say yes, so we'll. No, no, no. I want an honest answer here. Did you come because someone invited you? Raise your hands if that's the case. Take that, Megan. That's right. More than what I suspected. Good. All right. Second question is this. Whether someone invited you or whether you just showed up here on your own, the first one, two, three times, did you feel welcomed by those who were here? Did you feel like it was an inviting place and people wanted you to be there? Raise your hands now if that's the case. Interesting. Okay? Now, here's the third question. If you were not invited, and if the first several times you were here, you did not feel welcomed or invited... And that's okay. I should have you close your eyes here so that people can be honest. I want you to raise your hand. Okay? One or two? Yep, typically that's the case. Now, you may be saying, well, you're kind of skewing those results. I mean, of course, obviously, the people who weren't invited and the people who came and didn't feel welcome, of course they didn't raise their hands because they're not here. To which I say, exactly. Oh, I don't question that there are a lot of people who could raise their hands that have not been invited here or who came and did not feel invited. But what I know is that they aren't here. Which should be this remarkable reminder to us That relationships do not just happen. And if you long for people to connect with Jesus and to connect with others, the only way 99.9% of the time that it happens is when people are invited into that. And you see, I think that if we would spend less time thinking, how do I change the world? And more time thinking, how do I invite someone into my life, into my home, into my my congregation, that we might be surprised at the changes we begin to see? I want you to think about two things with me. I was thinking about what what are some of the big ways that I feel like we've had an impact here at ZPC? Uh, One of those is, is Great Banquet. 
Great Banquet now has had, you know, thousands, literally thousands. I think we're like 6,000, 7,000, something like that. Thousands of people who have gone through it. Thousands of people, many of them, whose lives have been changed, whose families have been changed, whose workplaces have been changed. You know, all of those things, many who have met Jesus, many who have kind of rekindled their passion for Jesus. Of course, not only here, but we've planted, we've planted a ton of great banquet communities, including in Brazil, right? And not only in Brazil now do we have one, but we have another one that's going to begin soon. Is that right, Mr. Wright? Yes, Mr. Wright. Okay, good. So, It's incredible. I mean, it is incredible how many people's lives have been changed because of Great Banquet. And that's just like, wow, that's great. Wonderful job. Boy, ZPC. Here's the question. How did that happen? Well, let's think about that. Hmm. The one in in Brazil, and, and I should have checked with you. I'm pretty sure I'm not lying. It happened because at some point, Somebody from ZPC invited maybe Pizzini or somebody else to come and be a part of the great banquet. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, let's see here. And, and, and all the people who have gone through, they did it because someone invited them. Okay, good, 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 good. And, 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 and we did, uh, we started a great banquet um, uh, because of the fact that um, that. that that Betty Sue and Randy LaFoon kind of had done it down in Kentucky and they invited some people from this congregation to go down to Kentucky and experience it. And they did that. Now that's all great, but now here's the thing. I wonder if you ever think about this. I asked Betty Sue and Randy, or I asked Betty Sue, because I knew that she'd give me a more honest answer. I asked her, well, Betty Sue, how did you start coming here? But she said, well, she, she just showed up. She wasn't invited. Okay, that's fine. But, but when you were here, what did, it, what did it feel like? She said, well, I felt, yeah, I felt, you know, I mean, I felt the welcome of God. And, and I felt it through the people, including, she said, this was the one she really highlighted, uh, including the southern accent of one of the pastors. Isn't that right, Betty Sue? Isn't that what you told me? Just say, yes, good. <laughs> that the accent of somebody, she's a southerner, it it made her feel welcome. It made her feel like this could be a place for her. Think about this. And I'm not suggesting we start making up accents. (laughs) But because of that simple reason that Betty Sue felt welcomed here, all of a sudden she and Randy began to come. And all of a sudden, because of that, then they said, hey, you know what? A few of you should come down here and see this great banquet. And a few of them went down and saw the great banquet. And they said, hey, we should do this as a church. And so we invited the church to do that. And several more people did it. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, then there are hundreds of people doing it, thousands of people doing it. All of a sudden, we're doing these plants. Then we're going all the way to Brazil. All of this, all of you thought about this, all of this, because Betty Sue felt welcomed by a southern accent and other things. If you ever thought, I can guarantee you that the people, the person who welcomed Betty, Sue, and Randy on that day had no idea that 20-some years later, there would be people hearing about Jesus for the first time in Brazil because they welcomed them on that day. Have you ever thought about that? 
Or what about this week? We had IHN here. It was fantastic, right? Where we were able to home our house, some homeless families. I love that. It's such a gift to us. I mean, Wednesday night, one of the guys came and played basketball. I mean, he made us look so old. I mean, we were bad. He was really good. But you know how that got started? Well, it got started because of, of Margaret Gordon. Margaret Gordon, who, who several years ago now, about five years ago or so, she said, hey, you know what? Maybe, you know, she brought it before the session. Hey, would we like to house the homeless for a couple of weeks, you know, and a, a year? And so we said, well, yeah, I think that'd be great. And how did Margaret do it? Well, because someone else, Marsha Umstead there at, uh, in our community, she invited Margaret to say, hey, do you think ZPC would want to do that? And so I thought, wow, this is, this is cool. I mean, all these people are inviting. So then I asked Margaret, I said, Margaret, how did you end up at ZPC? She said, well, I just kind of showed up. But she goes, and I don't remember. She's like, it was a while ago. But what I do remember especially was that it was within the choir where I most felt that welcome. I thought, wow. I wonder if, and I don't remember how many years ago. How many years ago was that, Margaret? 20 years ago. When the sopranos or the altos or the tenors, probably not the basses, but one of the other groups, when they welcomed this person they didn't even know really, the first time when they decided to welcome her, how many of them do you think thought, if I welcome her, I bet you in 20 years, we are going to give the homeless families around here a warm place to stay. How many of them do you think thought that? I'm going to venture none of them. But see, that's the kind of difference that we can make. And here's the thing. We do this not because it's good strategy. We do it because it is exactly the way Jesus worked. Jesus worked by inviting people into relationship. Jesus worked by saying, come and see. And when we begin to do that, we have no idea how the person with whom we are talking, the stranger with whom we are striking up a conversation, we have no idea how he or how she is going to do something that surely helps to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven heaven. And if we would stop waiting for the big, spectacular, exciting thing to do, and we would simply make ourselves available as Jesus himself did to say, come and see, we might just be surprised at how God works through us in incredible It's a simple message this morning. Stop waiting for your big shining moment. Stop waiting for there to be this great highlight when all of a sudden you see oh, all of my life was pointed towards this moment. Start inviting. Start inviting and creating space to listen 
to a stranger, to invite a new neighbor into your home, to invite someone to come and engage in worship, to invite someone simply to engage in one of the practices, the ministries that we do. Maybe it's to bring a meal to straight up or when we're housing the homeless. Maybe, maybe it's to, to quilt. We have, we, we've quilted our, our Loose Threads group over 2,000 quilts for the homeless. Maybe it's engaging in a food pantry or inviting them to come to Kentucky on a mission trip. It doesn't matter what it is. Here's the great news. It isn't up to you. God will do the work. All we have to do is say, come and see. And then watch as the Spirit of God works in incredible ways. Let us pray. God, we know our own tendencies to wait to hold our breath for that one big moment, that one shiny moment. To delay for the spectacular, to wait on the wondrous. So I pray that you would help us this week to see how it is that you worked so often by simply listening and speaking loving and caring. And might we be surprised at how you work through these simple acts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.